Thank you, Deanna. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we thank you for these rich promises that we just heard read over us. And we pray that we might trust in these promises and that they may shape how we live. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have shown us your goodness and your power. May we trust in that today. We just take just a moment to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word as we walk through this passage. Lord, thanks for your faithfulness to speak. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be uh, together and worshiping the Lord together, and it's great to see you guys. As Kyle mentioned, um, if you're visiting with us, we'd love to know you're here. Uh, there's that little card in the front, and uh, as always, on the back side of that card is a place for prayer, and uh, there's a spot in the front and the back to drop those off. We would love to, uh, to know you, to get to know you, help you get connected, but also to walk alongside um, whatever you're walking through um, in this season of life, and so it's good to be together. Probably a lot of us uh, know someone like this. They're the kind of person who will uh, tell you, uh, they kind of make lots of promises. Like, oh man, I'm going to come over, I'm going to fix this thing, I'm going to come over and I'm going to do that, I'm going to text you, we're going to get together. And they're kind of like, and they just make all these promises and you're like, this is great. But you've known them long enough to know that probably they'll fulfill about 25% of that. Um, And if you're like, I don't know anyone like that, it's you. Uh, and, and there's, we know these people, right? And there's something about this idea. In fact, actually, at one point, uh, I was going to be working closely with this person. And uh, somebody who had been working closely with the person ahead of time said, I want to tell you something about this person. You just need to know. Just don't believe their promises. And I was like, what a weird thing to say about somebody. And yet it was great advice. Uh, because it set my expectations that I knew when they made a promise and they made outrageous things, out, we're, I'm going to do this thing, and it sounds really good, I kind of hope you do, that I just sort of banked on about 25% of that kind of stuff coming true. Because it wasn't really a promise, it was a well-intentioned desire. And since my expectations were set, I, I knew it, it was a well-intentioned desire. They mean well, they're not, they're not bad motives. Uh, we know this, they want to do that thing, but they're just maybe not fulfill it. We know this even when we're just talking in our day-to-day. Someone says, oh, I've got a job interview. And you're like, oh, that's great. I I know you're going to get that job. We know what they mean by that. They don't know that. They have no power to work into that job. But they're just trying to encourage us. So we set our expectations. We, We know what you mean. You're just trying to encourage us. Or even sometimes with a sickness and someone in your family is is sick and they say, I just know they're going to beat that disease. And you're like, I I know you don't know that uh, or have the power to work at that. But it's a well-intentioned desire. And see, the promise, any promise, is only as good as the person who makes the promise and the, the knowledge and the power to make that promise. As we're walking through Romans 8, we come to a passage that is just, this chapter is just rich with the promises of God. And I want to say this, the, the promises of God are not a well-intentioned desire. The promises of God are unwavering, they are secure, they are firm, because our God is all-knowing and because he's all-powerful. And in his sovereignty, when he makes a promise, he will fulfill it. And that, therefore, sets our expectations differently. 
Our expectation to the promises of God is not to say, oh, you know, maybe God will fulfill about 25% of the things he said to us, like we do with some of our friends. No, our response and our expectation is an overwhelming trust that he will do what he says he will do. And today we come to probably one of the most famous uh, and most quoted promises uh, in the scriptures, that God will work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we love this promise and we quote it all the time as we should, but it's in the context of all of Romans chapter eight, which is promise after promise after promise. In fact, I want to encourage you sometime this week, open up Romans eight and just write down every promise that you see from the scripture in just that one chapter. And we've been talking about it in the last few weeks. I mean, promises like there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Promises like we are free to walk by the spirit, which leads to what? Life and peace. Promises like the Holy Spirit will remind your spirit of your identity in God. That you're no longer a slave to fear, but you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit tells us that over and over and over again. As we looked at last week, that while we groan because of what's happening all over the world, what's happening in our own lives, while we groan, that we wait with hope for a glorious future that's so glorious that the suffering of today will pale in comparison, he says, as we looked at last week. And then even while we groan and while we walk, the promises, the Holy Spirit will pray for us for things, and when we don't know what to pray, in words too deep, groaning's too deep for words because the Holy Spirit is praying for us. That's just a couple of promises that we've seen already in Romans 8. And we come to this famous promise that God has promised to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's in the context of all these promises that we've seen. And so what I want us to look at today is that promise. And I want us to ask two questions about it. One, what does it mean that God works all things for good? We have it quoted. We might even have it on our wall. What does it mean? And secondly, how do we know that the promise is secure? Is it a well-intentioned desire? Or is it a secure promise? And how do we know? First, let's look at this promise. What does it mean that God works all things for good? Now, right out of the chute, we see something about this passage. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's able to use all things. And all things, if you translate it in the Greek, it means all things. (laughs) All, every single thing. Things that we define as good or define as bad. Things that we define as joyful or horrible. Things that are disappointing. Things that are exciting. All things. And over and over again in the book of Romans, as we've been walking through it all since since the beginning of the fall, Paul makes it clear that God has done something completely out of our control. And over the next few weeks, we're going to press in and lean even more into God's sovereignty, his control over all things. And that's especially comforting when we look at, as we did last week, the suffering, the pain, the tribulation that we all walk through. Now, this verb here that working together, it's an active voice. So this means this is continually the activity of God. It's not just a one time. 
He works for good. This is, he is working for good. This is what he does. He is working all things. He's in control of all things, which means nothing is out of his control. And not only is he control, but he is, is in control, but he is working all those things for a purpose. What is that purpose? He says, good. He's in control and he's good. These two realities go hand in hand. And often, a lack of faith in one or the other hinders our ability to trust his promise. Is he good? And is he in control? He can use things that in and of themselves do not seem good and may not be good. But God sovereignly uses them to work towards ultimate good. So that means we have to then define what does it mean to be ultimately good? What does ultimate good look like? Now, probably each one of us could take a moment, even in just a little jot down, something we're walking through or something, whether it's been decades or whether it's been this week or, or something one of our friends or family is walking through, and we could write out the good outcome. Let me just write down right now what the good outcome is that we want to see from that. And see, but here's what this passage is saying. It's not necessarily our definition of good, but it's God's definition of good. Because often, our definition of good, maybe what we would have written down, is subjective or short-sighted. Often, we're like that well-meaning friend who says, I know you're going to get the job. But they don't know that. What do, we, what do they want for you? They want what's good to, to work out in your favor. And that's what we want. Oh, it's going to work out in our favor, or it's going to come together, or it's going to be what I would define as good, but our definition of good is not complete. Just like my kids, they can't see the good in eating vegetables. I can, right? Because I have a perspective that's different. And when we're short-sighted in what we believe is good, God sees everything. And not only does he see everything, he knows everything. And not only does he see and know everything, but he sees and he knows you. He knows the things that are best for you. Maybe not the same thing for me or the same thing for your neighbor. He is working all things for his ultimate good in you. And when I say good, I don't even mean this just generically. We understand in many ways in the context as we looked at last week where we are on the story that the ultimate good is the new heavens and new earth. When Jesus returns, and that, as we said already, that all the glory of that will just, I mean, the suffering now will just pale in comparison. We will forget it because we will see the glory of what that is. That's the ultimate good. But he also tells us in the next verse what kind of good he's working in us. He says, God is conforming us to the image of his son. This is the work of the Spirit that is transforming us, that is morphing us, that is changing us, so that we are more and more conformed into the image of Jesus, that we look more like Jesus. This is the pathway we're on. And it is good. It's for our good. And so the one who makes the promise, he knows you perfectly, and he has the power to work all things for good, even the good that we can't see. This is not a well-intentioned desire. It's a promise from the all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. So that's the promise. And the second question I said we would ask is, how do we know that the promise is secure? Now notice this. I don't want to miss this. Who is the promise for? 
It says the promise is for those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And so Paul's going to spend the next couple of verses explaining what it means to be called according to his purpose. This matters because it shows why this promise is not just a well-intentioned desire, but it is utterly secure because it rests solely on God. And what we're going to see is God's incomparable love and his sovereign work which means he has left nothing to chance. It's completely found in him. So how do we know it's secure? Let's look, let's continue to look at uh, this chapter, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, What Paul is doing is he's explaining this line, called according to his purpose. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. But he says it is to those whom God foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of God. Now, he foreknew them. He doesn't just know us. He foreknew us. Now, I know I just opened a huge can of worms. Just come back next week if you really want to get into it. And there's a lot of different views. We're, we're a big tent church, is the, the way we think about things theologically. And there's a lot of different views on, on what foreknowledge means among Christians and probably among many of us here in the room. Uh, that could be a whole other day spent on that. But I don't want to get bogged down here. Because sometimes I think what we do is we play these philosophical games with the idea of foreknowledge because, let's be honest, we can't understand it. It's a mystery that God knows all things, past, present, future, and he knows that outside of time, we can't get our head around that. But there's something specific that I want us to see here that Paul makes mention of. He says, it is for those whom he foreknew. So God, again, outside of time, before the foundations of the world, he knew believers in Jesus See, I think this emphasis here is not that God knows what will happen in the future, but of course he does. And it's not that that God knows certain people who will decide to follow Jesus at certain times. Of course, though, he does. The emphasis is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God knew you. Like you and me. God foreknew you, and he says he predestined or chose you. Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him. Now, these are challenging doctrines for us. And sometimes when we talk about predestination, we we can struggle this doctrine for a few reasons. We'll talk more about that next week. But what I want us to try to see is this, this understanding is from God's perspective. What he is doing in us from his perspective and his point of view. But what I actually want us to see is that this understanding of foreknowledge and predestination is actually overwhelmingly loving and comforting to us, not the opposite. Because before we did anything to earn, before we did something to choose God, before we were even born, before the foundations of the world, God knew us. God chose us. This is all kind of mind-blowing, but it points to a love that we, f- don't, we can't even fully comprehend. The moment we found out that we were pregnant with each of our three kids, I remember just having this sort of love awakened in me towards that child who wasn't even born yet. 
And, and it's a love that I can't describe, right? It's a love that I, I already love them more than I love different, differently than I love other people. And I've loved it watching them grow up as they continue to grow and morph and change into who God's made them to be. But even that love does not compare to this love of God. Because not only did God foreknow us, he created us in our mother's womb. But notice the progression in this passage, verse 30. He chose us. He called us to himself. He justified us, as we've talked about a lot in Romans, that he allowed Jesus to die in our place, therefore declaring us who are unrighteous, but declaring us righteous. And it says he will glorify us, which means he will complete what he started. I love my kids, but I don't have the ability, as much as I wish that I did, to make all things work out for good for them. I don't have the ability to give them what they can never earn that is utterly secure. Notice, again, God's sovereignty in all things, not just now, but even outside of time. He's sovereign in his foreknowledge. He's sovereign in his choosing. He's sovereign in his regenerating that we see elsewhere, new birth. He's sovereign in his calling. He's sovereign in his justifying. He's sovereign in the conforming us into the image of Christ. And he's sovereign in completing what he has started. This progression, whether we maybe, you know, move words around a little bit and disagree about that, that progression, what does it say? This is all on him. And it's a display of a love that we can barely fathom. That the God of the universe loves us. This is why we know it is secure. This is why we know it is not a well-intentioned desire. This is a promise, a secure promise. It's firmly rooted. It's outside of time. It's before we did anything. It's unmovable. It's unquenchable. It's a love that comes from the sovereign God of the universe. This is why Paul says, look what he says. Read it again, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is, at, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what I think Paul is saying, among other things. This famous promise that we quote, that God will work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is not like that person who just says, ah, I hope it all works out good. I, it's going to work out good. It's based on a God who is all-knowing, 
all-powerful, and in his sovereignty has said, this is firm. This is secure. Nothing can separate it. Because God has established this. And if you are a believer in Jesus, I want us to rest in this, that God foreknew you. He set his love upon you. He chose you. He regenerated you, giving you new birth. He called you. He justified you, declaring you righteous. He is conforming you to his image and he will glorify or finish what he started. If God is for us, who could be against us, he says. Now, why do we struggle to believe this? It's challenging. The struggle, and even more so, maybe the question is, why do we struggle to, to trust in this, to expect this? Why do we struggle to, to let this truth actually shape how we live, to, to have the peace that passes all understanding, to have the trust no matter what the future holds? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I, I think we still clamor after a good that we can control. Here's what I mean about that. This passage is really clear. God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's in control and he's the one who defines what's good. But how do we operate? We operate with this desire to have a good that we can control. What we believe, the lie we believe, is that if I'm in control of my situation, whatever it is, that it will end up good for me. That's the way we tend to function. That's the way we tend to think about life. So we we grip tightly to our stuff and to our family and, and to our circumstances. We believe that if we're in control, it'll all work out for good. And this is not just like, oh, uh, life principle I thought of. This is straight out of my journal this week. It's hard to trust God. It's hard to trust God with the future. And maybe for you, it's, it could be many things that you're like, I'm struggling to trust God with blank right now. Or you may be like me. This, this last couple of weeks, I've struggled to trust God with finances in the future. And that struggle, it's, it's real and it's But it's this fight against this lie that if I'm in control, then it will all work out good. And it's a lie. Because the promise is the exact opposite. That God, who is in control of all things, is working things out for good. A good that we don't even really know what that is all the time. And that lie, it just creates this perpetual insecurity. We live in this perpetual sense of uh, it's insecure because the trust in the promise is only as good as the one who can control it. And if it's up to us, in an honest moment, we know we can't control it. We can't control what happens. And we don't even know what's good. And so it creates this perpetual insecurity. I think that's one of the things that we struggle with. We want a good that we can control. Secondly, I think we want a love that can't be secure. We clamor after it. Sort of this, you know, horizontal love. Uh, you could use different words, acceptance, approval, being valued, being seen as worthy. Uh, we want this love, but it can't be secure. We tend to think, if only I could earn this approval from this supervisor or this, you know, love from this person or from this spouse, whatever it is, that if only I could get that here, earn that, 
then it will be secure. And nothing will separate us from the love of that person. But we know it's not true. We know too well how fickle love and acceptance and approval is on the human level. Because it's based on the latest transaction. What have you done for me lately? This also creates this perpetual insecurity because who is the trust in? The promise is only as good as the person who promises it. No human can love you perfectly. As much as they try, they will fail you and you will fail them. And so we have this hope and this promise that maybe that human will give me the love that will be secure, that nothing will separate me from that love, but it will not happen. They're not secure. So often we are chasing a good that we can control or a love that can't be secure. But the point Paul is making is that these promises, all of them all the way through Romans 8 and through all the scriptures, are fully secure. Because God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and sovereign, has worked and is working all things for our good. And God, who before the foundation of the world, before we breathed our first breath, knew us and chose us. We did nothing. God did everything. And therefore, it's secure. Now, he says in verse 32, he who loved us so much and he who did not spare his only son, would he not graciously give us all things? How do we know it's secure? Because he gave us Jesus. If God, who would not spare his own son, fully man and fully God, to come and to die in our place, if he will give us that, how would we doubt that he would graciously give us all things? That if he will give us Jesus, and what comes with Jesus is forgiveness of sins, uh, and a new identity in Christ as children and co-heirs of the promise. And what comes with Jesus is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us and, and leads us to all truth. And what comes with Jesus is this new orientation towards following him, a, following his righteousness, not slavery to sin. And what comes with Jesus is eternal life forever. How will he graciously not give us all things and work all things for our good? We trust in the promise because God who has given us the best thing, his son, has promised to give us everything we need for life and godliness, to graciously give us good things. Another promise you see here, he says, there's no accusation against his elect. You know, the enemy is called an accuser. When you hear the accuser's voice, that's not from God. God does convict us of sin, but he doesn't accuse. And when we hear accusation, we recite this promise that there's no accusation against his elect. And, and why? The emphasis in that passage is because we're the elect. Because God chose us. God dear, set his love upon each one of us. No one can accuse those whom God foreknew, who God predestined, who God elected, who God called, who God justified, who God regenerated, who conforms to the image, and who God will complete with the consummation of all things and glorify us. Again, it falls on him, not on us. It is God who does this. Therefore, it's all dependent on him. All of these promises lead to this last one that is so profound that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I just want to read this again. 
We've already read it. We'll read it a third time. We could probably read it 27 times today. And I just want to ask you just to close your eyes and listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul makes this list. What's the point of the list? It's an exhaustive way of saying nothing. Even the things that we think that cause us to think that maybe God has forgotten us or maybe God has not loved us or maybe the promises of God are not really real because we don't really feel them right now. Things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger keep going. What is he saying? He's saying nothing, nada, zilch. And he kind of has this nothing else in all creation just in case I didn't mention anything. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Today, what I want us to know, this is not just a nice thing to to put on a plaque or cross-stitch on your wall. I mean, it's a good thing to have on your wall, but it's not just that. This promise is not a platitude. This promise is not a well-intentioned desire. This promise changes everything for us. Because he who knows all things and has power to work all things for his good and perfect purposes has done that for you and me in the gift of Jesus and will continue to do that all the way until he takes us home. His love is not fickle. It's not dependent upon us and how we feel today or how we felt yesterday or how we feel tomorrow. It is the love of the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. And so what do we do? We set our expectations accordingly. We trust in the promise. We set ourselves up to say, this is what I'm going to to set my life upon. That he will do work good, his good in all things. And that if God is for us, who could be against us? Let's pray. Father, we... um, just sort of overwhelmed by all the glorious promises in this passage. And I pray for us as we hear these promises for many of us who are walking in the tension, suffering and trial and tribulation and distress, danger, Where we confess it's difficult and it's hard to believe that these promises are true. 
we confess that more often than not, we want a good that we can control. We want to grip tightly. Or we want a, a love that we think will be secure, but really isn't secure. But Lord, we are walking in the truth of this promise and we want to live with the expectation that these promises are not well-intentioned desire, but they are the promises of the God of the universe. And the way that we know, as your word says, is that he who would not spare his own son graciously gives us all things. And so Lord, now as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we turn our hearts and minds back to what Jesus has done, we remember that, he, that you did not spare your son for us. And because of that, there's, there's this shorthand of, because of we can trust everything that's true of the gospel, we can trust you with our lives. And so Lord, my prayer for us today is that as we take communion, it would be just that, an opportunity to, to trust you looking back to what you've done in the gospel, trust you looking ahead to what you will do for us, but also to trust you in the now that you, even in the things that are confusing, even in the things that are uncertain, even in the pain, are working all things for your ultimate good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.